This is Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where you can come and get lit. Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get set for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. Just a quick note before beginning today's episode that I did release this one a little later than usual, but it'll become clear why when we reach the takeaway section. Today I'm going to begin with a brief rant, albeit gentle, about people who like to go to Italy to find themselves. I think you know what I'm talking about, the kind of person who thinks Italians are about hanging around with, hey, oh, guys named Joey who have about five words to their vocabulary, including pizza and pasta or some other such nonsense, and to think Italy is a place to find love. And so, yes, I really dislike books like Francis May's Under the Tuscan Sun, which make Italy sound like a playground for someone's self-discovery, or for some passionate romance that is supposed to serve as an antidote or a palliative for the wrongdoings they've suffered because of a cheating spouse. Because Italy is just the place to go as a remedy for that. Oh, sure. Let's be clear, too, that while I may be thinking of Berlusconi right now, I don't think all Italians are such notorious philanderers. My co-producer, by the way, tells me that May's house in Italy was actually anything but under the Tuscan sun. It was apparently rather luxuriously shaded by a wooded enclave on a fairly expansive property. But again, I digress. As someone of Italian heritage, I have a rather different relationship with Italy, and I do find myself deeply annoyed by these narratives of self-discovery and maturation which ignore Italy's complexity as more than just a backdrop for their fantasies of escape and redemption. I understand the complexity of spaces we come to inhabit, places with which we come to identify, and places that may mean very different things and hold different memories for different people. As Marcel Proust in Remembrance of Things Past observes, no place was ever more than a thin slice, held between the contiguous impressions that composed our life at that time. Even so, there are real people living there with highly complex lives, and overwriting those lives and those people with personal fantasies of escape just seems to be, well, at the very least, irritating, if not outright disrespectful. In fact, when I went back to Italy with my father, who had not returned to his birthplace for over 60 years, what became evident was how radically his story departed from the experience delineated in these kinds of narratives. This was never more clear to me than when we first visited this exhibit in Rome about the thousands upon thousands of Italians who endured necessary migration after the Second World War because the economic conditions and prospects were so poor for the country and its people. He looked at the images sprawled across these cavernous rooms and burst into tears. I was stunned. I had only seen my father cry about three times in his life. What is it? I asked him. You have no idea how hard it was to leave a place you loved so much, he replied. And the further south we traveled down the coast of Italy, toward the very place he was born, the more lost in reverie he seemed. 
When we at last arrived in his hometown, he was greeted by the local bar owner, the village doctor, and one of several local grocers, childhood acquaintances, all of them, and almost consistently and notably male. He carried on with these men in his local dialect in extensive conversations from which I felt cut adrift. Like one of the village's stray dogs, I stood at the periphery of their discussions and reveries, which I could not follow or properly understand. In part, this was the legacy of a patriarchal culture, in which I, as a younger woman, could not really expect to partake, and I experienced a sense of relief that I had not been born there, nor had to live there. But I also realized that this man, who was my father, whom I loved, was also his own person, with his own memories and desires and stories. I was thinking of all of this while listening to the audiobook of Nino Ricci's Lives of the Saints while recently on a driving trip. The book has been read beautifully, in my opinion, by my co-producer Marco Timpano. I had already read this book several years ago, but it came alive listening to it again by this means. Now, I know there is a rich body of Italian-Canadian writers, including Terry Favreau, Connie Guzza McParland, and Pierre Giorgio Di Chico. And I also know this novel has had its share of attention, also having been made into a film starring Sophia Loren. Still, I love this book, and I personally identify with elements of it. To some extent, the mystery or the limits of knowability of my father as I saw it is also the predicament of the young protagonist and the narrator of the novel, Vittorio, in Valle de Sole, the setting for Ricci's novel. That is, the endeavor to understand that his mother's life is separate from his own. However, Vittorio is a young boy who is being interpolated into or inculcated by a patriarchal culture that would teach him to assess women, and even his mother, Christina, in particular ways. And this is one of the finer features of the novel, the polyphony of voices, their highly defined modulations that serve almost as a chorus around Christina and Vittorio. And this includes some of the female characters who are far more patriarchal than the men. I'm consistently amazed by how the patriarchy doesn't really need men to keep it alive and well. Anyway, the novel opens when a snake bites Vittorio's mother, Christina, in the ankle when she's in the barn. Here is the opening passage of the novel read by Timpano. If this story has a beginning, a moment at which a single gesture broke the surface of events, like a stone thrown into the sea, the ripples cresting away endlessly, then that beginning occurred on a hot July day in the year 1960, in the village of Valle del Sole, when my mother was bitten by a snake. Thus it opens with a reference to snakes. Go ahead and make all the associations you would wish with that image. Deception or the biblical story of the Garden of Eden with the snake that deceives Eve, because these will, to greater or lesser extents, have a bearing on the narrative. And the novel also helps us out making these associations. Here's another passage read by Timpano. Snakes in Valle del Sole had long been imbued with special meaning. Some of the villagers believed they were immortal because they could shed their skin, and at planting time to improve their harvest, they would buy a powder made of ground snake skins from La Strega di Belmonte and spread it over their fields. 
Others held that a snake crossing you from the right brought good fortune, from the left, bad, or that a brown snake was evil while a green one was good. But there was a saying in Valle del Sole, Dolorgolio sta, la serpe se ne va. Where pride is, the snake goes. And there were few who doubted that snakes, whatever their other properties, were agents of the evil eye, which the villagers feared far more than any mere Christian deity or devil, and which they guarded themselves against scrupulously by wearing amulets of garlic or wolf's teeth and by posting goat horns above their doorways. Christina, it seems, is judged, however, not because she's bitten by a snake, but because she's discovered to have been with a blue-eyed stranger in the barn. It becomes apparent in due course that Vittorio's mother has had an affair with this man with blue eyes. Now, Vittorio's father, who is a dark-eyed man, by the way, is absent. He's away in Canada trying to eke out a living. Before you feel too much sympathy for him, we should know that he's an abusive man and has cheated on his wife, Christina. But the rest of the town scrutinizes Christina's every move. Ricci here finally creates a heightened sense of claustrophobia. So even before it's perceptible that she's with child, and specifically the blue-eyed man's child, there's already considerable nattering about the town about what she was doing in the barn and with whom and what the consequences will be. Vittorio's mother flagrantly defies the lore around the snake. Uh, green snakes are supposed to be good fortune, but even so, a snake is a snake, as they say in the town. And all the other superstitious nonsense by which she's confronted, trying to live her life on her own terms. Even her father, whose position as a kind of mayor in the town is yet respected, slowly bends and yields to the town's pressure. And so in his humiliation, he retorts in response to his daughter's assertion that what I do is my business with not while you're living in my house, not while you want to remain my daughter. He differentiates between the town and his daughter constantly, adding that they are my people and you are common whore. I've never had to hang my head in shame, he adds. Now people come to my house like they come to the circus. It is, by the way, the residual elements of this kind of patriarchal culture to which I bore witness on my trip to my father's own little village in southern Italy. As the pressure mounts, even her son Vittorio is subject to the town's attacks, the young boys mocking his mother's infidelity and taunting his sexuality at turns. The teacher, that is, Vittorio's teacher, is one of the few people who takes pity on him, and it is she who introduces Vittorio to a book called The Lives of the Saints. Of course, that's where the title comes from. He's thereafter fascinated by the lives of persons whose acts of defiance present a kind of heroism that he's not yet witnessed in the town, or so he thinks. What he hasn't realized is the kind of daily heroism his mother lives, attempting to live her life on her own terms by refusing to be circumscribed by, and indeed in defiance of, the town strictures of conduct for women. If you have seen the movie Madalena, you'll know what I'm talking about, and if you haven't, I've added a link in my show notes. The thing about Vittorio is that it's very, very hard for a son to see his mother in any other way other than his mother. It's very hard to see her in terms that respect her individual choices as a human being with her own set of desires and needs. It's even harder for him when, on the one hand, he loves his mother and needs to be protected by her, 
and on the other hand he's being repeatedly enjoined by a community to conform to the moral codes that run along strict lines of gender. This is his home, but his mother is his home too, and increasingly he feels lost, pulled in different directions, and disconnected from the person whose life is being lived radically apart from the strictures by which she has been confined. And so the narrative is fundamentally about his mother's life, her spirited responses to the critiques and abuse that are heaped upon her, responses for which the reader is invited to feel a kind of admiration, which I certainly do feel. She's a contemporary saint, if you will, but it is also about his sense of disconnection from her and his simultaneous desire to be connected to her. I get that part, too. It's not unlike my father's own sense of himself moving through the town in a way that made me feel his life took on rhythms and currents altogether different from my own. Readers of this novel will come away with precisely this kind of understanding, coming to a finer comprehension that parents are more than just parents, but real people with separate lives of their own. Even if in my own personal circumstance I was the one who experienced the discomfort related to the claims that the patriarchy makes, I learned to have a greater appreciation for my father, not only as my father, but as an individual with his own wishes, his own desires, his own dreams, disappointments, and regrets. This is the takeaway portion of the podcast. You'll know why in just a moment I opted to release this particular episode later than my usual Thursdays by the recommendation I'm about to give. Christian Dior's Petit Dictionnaire de la Mode. I knew I'd be going to the Dior exhibit, currently being staged at the McCord Museum in Montreal, Quebec, with my friend Jennifer Andrews, who was visiting this week, and I knew I'd get my hands on the catalogue, which I did, beautifully researched by Alexandra Palmer with these luscious, evocative photographs. What I didn't expect was this little bijou by Dior himself, And while my copy is in a now out-of-print French version, Dior actually wrote the original version in English. Not in French, as one might expect, as I certainly did. The dictionary is really a pleasure, an added one, by the way, after the exhibit itself, which tracked his meteoric rise to fashion icon by virtue of the sumptuous fabrics and enhanced feminine designs. I really think we need to induct reasons to wear floor-length gowns again. Anyone with me on this? I am tempted to assign the last Friday of August as Fashion Friday from now on. Stay tuned for that. Anyway, the book offers these little bits of advice. How, for example, small women should avoid too many colors combined in one costume, which would otherwise cut down her height. Or that a tall woman shouldn't wear vertical stripes, which would render her too much like, quote, a New York skyscraper. The extremely kind and helpful salesperson at the McCord bookstore offered her favorite bit for older women. I believe perhaps, maybe, I might fall in that category. Whatever the case may be, Dior notes that there are no women as refined as those with gray hair, and that such a woman is also in possession of charm and dignity, 
although she should also avoid childish clothing and overly aggressive colors. The book is full of these kinds of delights. You can pick up your copy at the McCord Museum, or if you're not in Montreal, try your local library or at various venues online. That's it for today's episode of Getting Lit with Linda. In two weeks' time, tune in for a discussion about Thomas King's One Good Story, That One. Otherwise, thanks for joining me today, dear listeners. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to see covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.